Well, Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to read again um, the opening 11 verses of this chapter. I know we read last time down to verse 14, but we'll just read the opening 11 verses again. So let's once again hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head, with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes and your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of His Word in this well-known account to all our hearts. Now, we began to look at the first of the seven feasts of the Lord mentioned in Leviticus 23, the last time in the adult Bible class. And probably the best known and the most preached on is the feast of the Passover, since it sets before us the truth of redemption by the blood of the Lamb, which is the central theme of the Scripture. And the typical significance is clear when we call to mind the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, where he says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And without doubt, we have shadows of the Savior, both His person and His work in this first feast. Now, we have the details of the Passover given to us here in Exodus chapter 12. And I said that I had nine headings that all contained the letter P, alliteration, and we looked at some of those already. We notice, first of all, the period of the Passover found in verse 2. The Lord changed the beginning of the year to correspond not only to this feast, but the actual event of which this feast was a part. You see, it was good in God's eyes uh, to begin the new year with a feast, which emphasized the relation of people, of the people to God, and brought to their memory that, that constant reminder that that relationship was founded on redemption. Now, we noted that God is a God of new beginnings, and the greatest of these is, of course, when our sins are washed away. The second point was the prescription of the Passover, and that was found in verses 3 and 4. God commanded every household to take a lamb, and we noted there the sufficiency and the efficiency of the lamb. If the household was too little for the lamb, well, then they were to join themselves to the neighboring house, and they were to take an account of every man's eating. And as I was reading that this morning, I was thinking of some men maybe sitting amongst us here, and their portion might be slightly larger than other people's. But they had to take an account 
of that. And we noted, or I drew out the point really of that, that historical reform doctrine of the sufficiency and the efficiency of the Lamb, the sufficiency of that sacrifice. It's sufficient for all because of its worth, and yet it's only efficient for some because of its intent. And then the final point we looked at was the particulars of the Passover, especially the particulars of the Lamb, and that was found and outlined in verse 5. And it was to be a pure Lamb, it was to be a prime Lamb, and it was to be a particular Lamb. And we thought about those points in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a lamb without blemish, who was cut off in the midst of the years, and was chosen out from among the people, therefore, being a true man, who could, he could stand as a substitute for us. Now, this is part two this morning as we consider the feast of the Passover. And the first thing this morning we're going to think about is the procedure of the Passover. And this we find in verses 6 and seven, let's read it together. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts, and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And then on down in verse 22, we read there, And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Now we notice back in verse 3 that the paschal lamb was to be separated out from among the others of its kind on the tenth day. Now those who would build a whole premise, a whole premise of thought or teaching on numbers, certain numbers in the Bible, but, well, we can't always do that, but there is a significance uh, to the numbers uh, concerning numbers in the Word of God. The number 10, as well as the number 7, it often stands for perfection or wholeness or completeness. It, along with the number 40, is also used to signify testing. So this lamb was taken out on the 10th day of the month. It was separated out to be observed closely for four days to make sure that everything, or that it was everything it was supposed to be, a pure lamb and a prime lamb, that it was perfect and that it was complete. It was like a period of testing for that lamb. If there's any faults or any flaws in it, then in those days of close observation, well, that would have been picked up. Now, in relation to Christ and the fulfillment of this typology, the Detail of the tenth day is not incidental. Now, there's a vast, a vast study, and there's masses of material to work through concerning the timings and the days of the final week of Christ's earthly ministry. The terms that are used, and the fact that there are four Gospels, plus the Jewish day beginning at sunset, well, that makes for a very in-depth study. And I don't have time to go into all the details of Christ last week, this morning. But in John chapter 12, and the verses 1 and 2, we find there that the Lord Jesus was in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus six days before the Passover. And then further on down, we read in verse 12 there that the next day is the day that He made His triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And that's when the people really set him apart as their king. They extolled him as the one who would 
uh, come in the name or who had come in the name of the Lord. Now, it's interesting because that would have been the tenth day of the month Nisan, and that corresponded to our Monday. Now, it was four days later, four days later, that the Lord Jesus would eat the final Passover meal with his disciples on the 14th day of the month. And he did that before he instituted the Lord's Supper. And then on the 15th day of the month, what we call Good Friday, the Lord Jesus was crucified. Now, for those four days, in and around Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus was under the closest inspection. All the scribes, all the Pharisees, all the notable men, all the elders of the children of Israel were in that city for that great feast. And so every eye was trained on the Lord Jesus Christ. Even after his arrest, he was examined with particular intensity. Now, of course, throughout his whole life, he was subject to scrutiny of the greatest kind and criticism of men and the fierce temptations of the devil. And yet the challenge of those years, which of you convinceth me of sin, it went unanswered because none could convince him of sin. It was only by false witnesses and contradictory evidence that men could condemn him. And we touched on that a little the last time, the sinlessness of Christ. He kept the law. It not only had a Godward aspect to it, but had a manward aspect. And Christ was spotless in all respects, outwardly, inwardly, Godward, and manward. And there he was under the most intense scrutiny. And he was found to be perfect and complete. You know, a man's friends or his family may, with rose-tinted spectacles, they may, they may not see or they may choose not to see the little discrepancies or imperfections in their character or their conduct. But a man's enemies, with a heightened sense of criticism, well, they will find those things. They will pick and find the little faults. But Christ's enemies, they could find nothing worthy of death in him. There was nothing lacking in his moral character. It wasn't that they could say, oh, he did that. They couldn't even say, well, he hasn't done that. The Lord Jesus was perfect. There was a man called Frederick Whitmore, and he made this comment. The lamb presented by John the Baptist is the man presented by Pilate. The lamb without blemish is confessed to be the man without fault. How true that is. It is the perfection of his person that gives value to his great work. John presented him as a lamb. Pilate presented him as, as the man. He is the lamb without blemish and the man without fault. Now, moving on in verse 6, we read that the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now, we notice here that the slain of the lamb was not confined to the priests. In fact, at this time, there was no recognized uh, structural institution of the priesthood. It wasn't until after the exodus that that was established by the Lord. The function of the priest belonged to the head of each home. He was the one who was responsible for dealing with the matters concerning the lamb, and he was the one who had to make sure that his family participated in the benefits of it. He could not be negligent in that point, for it would cost him and his household dearly. 
And so we see that. That's why the congregation there were instructed to kill. Not the priests, because the priesthood wasn't established at this time, but really the heads of the home. And that principle still holds true today. It is the head of the home who is responsible in the matters concerning the land and making sure that his family partakes in the benefits of it. Now, it says here that the whole assembly shall kill it. Now, obviously, not everyone killed a lamb that night because it was a lamb for the household. Only one person of the household would have killed the lamb but that individual, thought to be the head of the home, he did it in the name of others. And the whole assembly was represented by the one who actually did it. Just as the whole assembly of Israel is said in Leviticus 24, 14, and 16, the whole assembly is said to have stoned an individual. But obviously, and I don't know the numbers, but what came out of, of, of Egypt and was it up to two million people or maybe even more? Obviously, not everyone of the whole company or the congregation of Israel lifted stones to kill an individual. Two million stones landing on top of someone. But it's said that the whole congregation did, and it's by representation. Now, again, thinking of God's Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, we read that it was the elders of the people it was the elders of the people who acted on behalf of the people who handed Christ over to the Romans that they might do to Christ what they could not do themselves at that time, which was kill him. And yet we read it was all the multitude who cried out, crucify him. They all had their part in the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. And they even said, his blood be on us and on our children. Now, among the firstborn, or among the Israelites, the firstborn would have been party, or he would have been complicit to the killing of the lamb that was to stand in his place. Even though he did not, as it were, maybe lift the knife, he was party to it, he was complicit to it. We too, brethren and sisters, we had our part in the death of Christ. Though we did not hand them over to the Romans, and though you and I did not drive the nails into his hands and his feet, it was our sin. It was our sin is the reason why his blood was shed. We were party to it. We were consent to it. Though we were not there, we were represented in that great multitude who cried, crucify him, crucify him. Now, we read here that the lamb was to be killed by the whole congregation. As I said, that was representative, the heads of the home. But it was to be killed in the evening. Now, in the Hebrew, this literally means between the evenings. Between the evenings. And in Jewish custom, that was between the beginning of the evening, which was 12 noon, and the end of the evening, which was 6 p.m between the evenings. Now we read in Matthew 27 and the verse 46 that it was at the ninth hour. That's three o'clock that Christ cried, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And if we compare this to the writings of Jewish historian Joseph, Josephus, who was around at the time of Christ, we find 
that the Jews slew the Passover lambs at that time at three o'clock in the mid-afternoon between the evenings. That was also the time of the evening sacrifice in the temple. And it was the time for prescribed worship or the time of prayer. And we read about that in Acts chapter 3 and the verse 1. You see, only a foreknowing God could give a procedure that would be fulfilled exactly by His Son, the predestined Paschal Lamb. We see that this feast of the Passover, which clearly casts a shadow of Christ and what He did, it was slain in the evening, between the evenings. And we see how this aligns perfectly with when the Lord Jesus was crucified on the cross. Now, there is another interesting line of thought that I came across while I was studying about the timing, uh, timings of the killing of the Lamb. Since it was killed in the evening of the 14th day of Nisan, that night, as I mentioned in the last study, it was a night of a full moon. And that wasn't by accident because God gave them the great light to aid them in their journey. But since we know that the Lord Jesus was crucified on or around the same time, we know that He was crucified at the time of a full moon. A full moon. Now we read in the gospel accounts about the darkness that came upon the whole earth. And there has been the suggestion that that was a solar eclipse. But a solar eclipse cannot happen at a full moon. It only happens in the new moon. And there's been men, and they have tried to explain away the supernatural by saying it was a solar eclipse, when the moon stood between the earth and the sun. But that could not happen at the period of the full moon when Christ was crucified in the middle of that month, the first month, the month of Nisan. Couldn't have happened. You see, men are always trying to take the supernatural out of the Word of God. And when you take the supernatural out of the Word of God, well, you're not left with the gospel at all. That miracle, that darkening of the earth, was a divine proclamation, a declaration that Christ's death was a death like none other. Because there was a multitude, thousands of Jewish men that were crucified around the same time. But that was a divine attestation that this was a death like none other. That was a supernatural miracle. That wasn't something that was of the course of nature. And if you had been reading the news articles recently, we know about the solar eclipse that's going on or had been going on in Central America over the Americas in recent days with those wonderful images and shots. But it was the Lord that darkened the earth to proclaim to the nations that this is the Christ, this is the Lamb. Now, there are further details concerning the procedure. We're still in this part of the procedure in verse 7. And it's particularly to do with the blood. We have those details expanded a little in verse 22, where we have mention of hyssop and the basin. Now, the main point to note here is that there was something done with the blood. The animal was killed, yes, that's true, but the blood was collected in a basin. And the blood was applied to the doorposts and the lintel 
with a bunch of hyssop, more than likely sprinkled. And we noticed in Levitical offerings, and it's the same here, there was always something done with the blood, and that's very important. Now, it has been said that Christianity is a bloody religion. And the reference, when that said, it usually is made by critics who point to the wars and the inquisitions and the trials and the executions carried out over the years in the name of Christianity. Why do we have to admit that much blood was shed in the name of so-called Christianity? The fact of the matter is that at the heart of Christian theology is the blood. It is the blood. The shedding of blood is the result of sin. Yet it is by the shedding of blood that sin is removed. In other words, without sin there would be no blood shedding. But likewise the Bible teaches that without blood shedding there would be no forgiveness. And consequently the Scriptures speak, or in the Scripture the blood speaks of both retribution and redemption. More than anything else, the blood of Christ is spoken of as accomplishing the great benefits of our salvation. Just to list them for you, and you've heard these many times, but we are purchased by His blood. Acts 20, verse 28. We have propitiation by His blood. Romans 3, 25. We have been justified by His blood. Romans 5, verse 9. We have redemption through His blood. Ephesians 1 verse 7. We who were far off are made nigh, brought nigh by His blood. Ephesians 2 verse 13. We have peace through His blood. Colossians 1 20. Our consciences are purged by His blood. Hebrews 9 13. We are sanctified through His blood. Hebrews 13 verse 12. We are redeemed by His blood. 1 Peter 1 verse 19. We have been washed from our sins in His blood. Revelation 1 verse 5. There are many benefits, these and more in the Scripture, that teach us the blood of Christ is central to all that we are as a redeemed people. And it's by the blood that atonement is made. And it's so clear from the repeated sacrifices in the Old Testament and the teaching of the New Testament, that it wasn't the blood of bulls or of goats, or off even this Passover lamb, that satisfied God, that appeased His wrath, that turned away His anger towards us. It's the blood of Christ. Therefore, it is the blood that is described as precious blood. Now we also see that hyssop was used in this procedure. Verse 22, And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop. Since people in the biblical era, they did not have access to the products that we do today, they often relied on naturally occurring resources, such as plants and animal byproducts and minerals for cleaning and for cooking, for food, for medicine, and for more. And the hyssop was one of those resources. It's a herb, it's from the mint family, and it's got cleansing and medicinal properties. And that was prolifically used in the Middle East in many different variety of ways. Now, the Bible mentions hyssop several times, especially in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, God commanded, He commanded His people to use hyssop in ceremonial cleansing of people and houses. 
In one example, he tells the, the priest to use the hyssop together with cedar wood and scarlet wood, or wool, sorry, and the blood of a bird to cleanse an individual who had been healed from some skin disease, more than likely leprosy. This act of ceremonial cleansing was also used in the homes, those homes that were contaminated with mold. And hyssop was used there. And when those individuals were cleansed, as it were, and had that hyssop and the blood sprinkled upon them, well, they were able to re-enter the camp. We're told that in Leviticus chapter 14. And God here tells the Israelites to use a bunch of hyssop to apply the blood. That's probably because hyssop was a sturdy plant, could be used as a, as a paintbrush. But it's also likely that it signified that God was making His people pure. They were being cleansed. They were not the targets of God's judgment as it would pass through the land that night. Now in John 19, as you know where I'm going, John 19 verses 28 to 30, we find that hyssop appears at Christ's crucifixion. The Roman soldiers, they offered him a drink of vinegar upon a sponge, and it was upon a hyssop stalk. Or some would actually think, well, it was upon a reed, and it was tied to that reed with a hyssop plant. But I would suggest the former is more the case, because the hyssop stalk could be between three and four feet, and that would reach up to the mouth of a man suspended upon a cross. But the hyssop was there. And it's interesting that that plant was chosen because it must surely reminds us of the typical significance of the application of the blood to our hearts. And it's by what Christ done that you and I have cleansed and we're able to make our approach again to God. Now the act of applying the blood, it consecrated the house of the Israelites. They were to sprinkle the blood upon the doorposts and the lintels, and, and that would have been an open profession of their faith. They believed that God had said that He would deliver His people by the blood, and it was an open profession of their faith. They were not to apply the blood to the threshold because people would maybe tread on it. And the symbolic uh, value of the blood was safeguarded by that uh, prohibition. They weren't allowed to sprinkle it on the threshold. And of course, our minds go to Hebrews 10. And the verse 29 speaks of those who reject the gospel of God and the way of redemption by the blood. As those who trample underneath their foot the blood of Christ and treat it as an unholy thing. And therefore, the typical significance is there, and that's why they weren't to put the blood upon the threshold, lest they trample it under their foot. So that is the procedure concerning the Passover. But secondly, this morning, the partaking of the Passover. Let's read verses 8 to 10. Uh, 8 to 10 in Exodus chapter 12 again. It says, And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and leavened bread, and the bitter herbs they shall eat it. 
eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof, and ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. Then on down verse 46, we also read concerning the partaking of it. In one house shall it be eaten, thou shalt not carry the fourth out of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. Alexander McLaren, he made this comment, after the sprinkling of the blood came the feast. Only when the house was secure from destruction, which walked in the darkness of that fateful night, could a delivered household gather round a table. That which had become their safety now became their food. See, God's instruction did not stop at killing the lamb and applying the blood, but it continued for the people they were to partake of the lamb. It would nourish them for the journey that lay eminently before them. They needed that sustenance for the journey they were about to embark on. And so too by faith we must feed upon Christ. You see, from Him we receive, we derive our spiritual strength and nourishment. Just as you and I delight and take satisfaction and enjoyment in our physical food, so too we delight. We delight in Christ. Many times we have this analogy of feeding upon Christ in Scripture. And it's a picture, it's really a picture of appropriating Him by faith, who He is and what He has done, drawing from Him, drawing the grace that He's purchased for us by His living and by His dying, feeding upon Him, giving us strength for the way and for the journey that lies before us. The Lord Jesus, He used this type of language Himself of feeding and feasting upon Him in John chapter 6, 53. Turn over to John 6, please. Verse 53 to 55. And Christ uses this language. There's a whole section on it, but we'll just read from verse 53. It says there, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whosoever eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. See, God directed that they roast the lamb, that they roast the lamb with fire in order that they might feast upon it. And that was common to the method of the nomads, how they cooked their meat. And it was really the opposite of many of the contemporary pagans at the time who, who ate their meat raw, the meat that was offered to their idols. And so there's a distinction here. The Egyptians, they ate raw meat as it was sacrificed to their idols. But Israel, they were commanded to roast it. They were not to boil the lamb with water. Roasting would have been quicker, it would have been better suited to the circumstances. And it also enabled the host, the head of that home, to place the lamb on the table undivided, unchanged in its essential structure and appearance. A full lamb. You have those companies now that do that big spit roast 
at barbecues and you can bring them out. Well, this is why it was to be roasted with fire, so that the whole lamb could be set upon the table. And we read about that there in Exodus chapter 12, speaking about roasting it with the head and, and the body and all the rest of it, the legs and, and all the rest. You see, the whole lamb upon the table, it would have strengthened the impression of the substitutionary nature of the lamb. For it looked like an animal, an entity, rather than just a bowl full of meat. It also would have meant roasting it in that manner and not boiling it, that not a bone of it would have been broken. The pertinence, that's believed to be the heart and the liver and the kidneys. It was also roasted in the fire. A, well, there's different opinion concerning the, the intestines and that ca canal and tract. Some believe it was removed. Others believed it was washed and put back. But basically, we can say the whole essential lamb went through the fire and was to be feasted upon. Now, of course, the roasting with fire at the notes of sufferings of Christ, because he did endure the fiery wrath of God's judgment when he hung upon the tree. In Lamentations 1 verse 13, we hear Christ prophetically say, from above, he hath sent fire into my bones. And throughout the Old Testament, there's many, many references to God's fury being poured out as fire upon a people. The eternal punishment of the unsaved. It's a fiery judgment. And that's what God's Lamb endured for you and me. He endured the fiery indignation and fury of God's wrath upon the cross of Calvary, and by His blood He extinguished the fires of that wrath forever for us. And as He did that, not a bone of Him was broken. As we read in John 19, 33 and 36, that was a fulfillment of both the picture here in the Passover feast and the prophecy. As we read in the book of the Psalms, See, all the lamb was to be feasted on. As John Gill put it, it was to be all add up. A whole Christ is to be received by faith and fed upon. Christ in both his natures, divine and human, in all his offices of prophet, priest, and king, with all the benefits and blessings of his grace, and which come by his blood, righteousness, and sacrifice. You see, we can't have half a Christ. We can't say, well, I'll take him as Savior, but I'll not bow before him as Lord and King. No, we are to partake of a whole Christ. And that's why it was to be roasted with fire. It was also to be eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now, I don't want to go into the unleavened bread in detail because the next feast is concerning the feast of the unleavened bread. But the bitter herbs were there upon the Passover table. And there are a number of suggestions of what those bitter herbs might have been. Some say it was wild lettuce. I don't know. No one could really say, say what it is. But in a culinary sense, they would have brought out and drew forth the sweetness of the lamb, the meat of the lamb. 
And they were there upon the table to serve as a reminder of the bitter experiences that the children of Israel had under bondage. You know, brothers and sisters, we end the remembrance of our sins, our past sin, and our life of bondage, and all the departure, and all the things we did against God. When that is bitter to us, it draws forth to us the sweetness of the Lamb. And what He did for our souls. We read that nothing of it was to remain until the morning. Nothing was to be carried out of the house. And if anything remained, well, it must be burnt with fire. That would have included things like the bones and the sinews and maybe any remnants of meat that were stuck to those bones. The Israelites, they were not to eat the parts of those meal, of that meal again as leftovers. I don't know about you, but maybe on Monday you have leftovers from your Sunday roast. Well, well, up until recently, I didn't really like that. I really got put off uh, the next day, my Sunday dinner on Monday, but I've, I grew more accustomed to it, and I don't mind it. But they were not to eat of this as leftovers. You see, from this moment on, they were to depend on God for their daily bread. That was to be their habit of their life from that moment. They were not to carry the lamb forth out of the house. It was all to be consumed. And if anything was left, bones, sinews, or little bits of meat, it was all to be consumed by the fire. Now, why did the Lord command for it to be burnt by fire, anything that remained? Well, it would have prevented the possibility of profanity or superstitious use. No one was to make a lucky charm or a relic of the lamb that was slain. And there have been instances, many instances, where Rome, they have taken all sorts of bones and body parts, and they have fashioned them into relics and superstitious things. And yet God here was guarding against such profanity and superstition that they weren't to, as it were, rest on a little item that they could hold in their hand, but they were to trust in Him. Another reason was a very practical reason. It was to prevent putrefaction. It was not proper that any of that meat or any of that animal would be subjected to corruption. And of course, that causes us to think of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I said in Acts chapter 2, 27, that he saw no corruption. His body as it lay in the tomb. So we have the procedure and the partaking. Finally, and very briefly this morning, there is the preparation. Preparation of the Passover. Preparation, really, of the individuals. Verse 11, if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, it tells us there, And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes and your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, these instructions are understood by the Jews to only apply to the first Passover, for there's no trace of their observance at any later time. So, excuse me, just to the first Passover. And it speaks of preparedness, each of the direction that marks preparation for a journey. The long flowing robes, they were to be gathered up, they were to be girded around the loins. 
the shoes, which were not usually worn in the house or at meal times, well, they were to be on the feet, and the traveling staff was to be in their hand. Spurgeon made this comment concerning this verse. They were to stand like travelers who were starting upon a journey, believing that God was about to set them free. Oh, that we would always exercise faith in our devotions. By that, I believe Spurgeon means that we'd be always ready to do what God commands in our devotions. That's how we'd be there. As we read the Word, we should be ready. Always ready to exercise faith in our devotions. As God's redeemed, we're always to be in the position of preparedness, readiness. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he gives us the, the spiritual application for the believer in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we draw to a close. He tells us there, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul spoke about our loins gird about with truth in Ephesians chapter 6. The Lord Himself exhorted in Luke chapter 12, 35, Let your loins be gird about and your lights burning. We must always be ready. Ready to give an answer of the reason of the hope that is within us. Ready to grasp an evangelistic opportunity when it presents itself. Ready to depart when God calls. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 15, we read these words, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my Lord the King shall appoint. And that's how we should be in our Christian life, ready to do what God commands. Verse 11 finishes with the words, It is the Lord's Passover. And that's the first mention of the word Passover in the Bible. And we have a reminder here of the Godward nature of this feast. Yes, it was instituted by Him, and that way we can say it's a feast of the Lord. But it was also for the appeasing of His wrath and the turning away of His judgment. That's where we need to stop this morning. We've looked at the procedure. We've looked at the partaking and the preparation. Next time, we'll look at the protection, the practice, and the prohibition of the Passover. And trust the Lord will bless the study to your heart and even strengthen and edify your faith. That's by in prayer. Our gracious God, loving Father, we thank Thee we have a whole Christ to feed upon. We thank Thee for the God-man, His divine, His human natures, rejoice in His offices of prophet, priest, and king. And we thank Thee, Lord, for the fulfillment of all the typical significance of what we read here in the Passover. And Lord, we thank Thee for Christ, the one who was slain between the two evenings, three o'clock when He cried, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? We thank Thee, Lord, that we can feast upon Him, knowing that our deliverance is secure, that the blood has been shed, and the blood has been applied to our hearts, and all the merit of it. We thank the Lord for blood theology. We rejoice 
for all these great benefits of our salvation that are accomplished, that are secured by the shedding of the precious blood. Lord, hear our prayer. Bless the word as it's gone forth, both here, the Sunday school classes, the junior and senior Bible class. We pray, O God, that glory be brought to thy name and that thou will continue on with us in the morning worship. For this we ask in the Savior's precious and glorious name. Amen.